0: You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. Second
1: City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. You're listening to this podcast. You love podcasts. Hopefully, you also love The Second City and our work. You know who else will love podcasts from The Second City? Your colleagues and employees. I'm excited to share a new partnership that The Second City Works is entering into with Venly, an audio technology company that allows businesses to share audio and podcasts directly for employee engagement and learning and development. Our new series, First Takes, uses amazing corporate insights and teaching that we've developed through the years and communicates it in eight short podcast episodes. Share this content with your employees on channels like Slack, Microsoft Teams, SharePoint, First Up, and your LMS, all with enterprise grade security, privacy, and analytics. Interested in sharing this content and learning more? Register at www.venly.co slash Second City and we'll get you set up. Once again, it's www.venly.com. Dot co slash second city to get access to the first takes content series. We're looking forward to learning with you and your colleagues. So today's guest is my friend, Dr. Adrian Boise, uh, who is a practicing neurologist and global thought leader, uh, who was most recently chief experience officer at the Cleveland clinic. And now she is the first chief medical officer for Qualtrics, which is a, a tech firm in Silicon Valley. Um, she she's a pal and she's super smart and uh, I think you're going to enjoy the pod the second city is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars that didn't happen by magic second city's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success off stage at work at home and in the world i'm kelly leonard executive director of insights and applied improvisation at the second city this podcast is about collaborative conversations seeking connections and finding a better way this is getting ds yes and
0: days can't be counted by the money spent today was just another better left unsaid to land tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next the car of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch
1: the tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops dr adrian boise welcome to the show
2: thanks for having me it's so good to see you
1: it's really good to see you um I was reading an article that you wrote called Empathy is Everywhere and Nowhere at the Same Time, and one of the quotes from that article is, quote, perhaps perhaps we are all survivors of brokenness, end quote. Uh, While some people might think that you're making a really sad statement, and I would say, well, an element of that, of course, is the case, I don't see that quote as being purely sad.
2: Right. Well, it starts simply in a place of recognizing that suffering is a big part of all of our lives in one form or another. Uh, I think the hope and the journey I would want people to see in it is the notion that we all move through that. There's a, a process, whether it's a beautiful process or it's an ugly process or a painful process or a slow process, we all keep putting one foot in front of the other to get through it. And often on the other side of that, we're not the same people. We're somebody different. We emerge differently on the other side of that. And that's okay. That can be a good and a beautiful thing.
1: But it's hard, right? And this was the conversation we were just having before I hit record, which is, you know, there's a war in Russia has invaded Ukraine. It's terrible. Um, you got on the call and go. How are you doing? And I've had a really good week, Uh, you know. And 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 not again. Not that I don't wake with that news, and that news doesn't bother me. And It does, and and I've had those conversations with with other people. But I've also been, I don't know, very satisfied with my work this week. And I had great therapy session last Thursday, and I've got one tonight. So, you know, and I'm I'm going to go out to a restaurant tonight and have a meal. And I mean, so. I, I guess this idea of the, this duality, which is hard for human beings, right? It's that idea of holding two opposing thoughts in your idea at the same time, which Fitzgerald said was intelligence. Um, but that's something I think in your field, in the healthcare field, you definitely, like, you experienced that on steroids.
2: Well, wow, you threw me a lot there, uh, Kelly, as usual. I, I would I would start by maybe reflecting on you know, from our mutual friends, uh, Adam Grant and Cheryl Sandberg, right? This mm-hmm. idea of how are you today, right? Yeah. That that grief, trauma, duality, whatever it is that you're holding, it's about how, how are you holding it today? Not that you're expected to hold it all beautifully every day, uh, but to make that question more relevant and present for each other is mm-hmm. simply to ask in this moment, how are you? Uh, I also Amidst all of the trauma that you're describing uh, in the Ukraine, I also have been so inspired by some of the beautiful things that people are doing. Yeah, at at Qualtrics, you know, they're matching internal donations uh, for Ukraine. I mean, what a beautiful gesture of a company to say right. we want every single person to contribute in any way that they can, and we're going to match that. Uh, the inspiration that has come from the Ukrainian leadership, right? In the messaging. The I, I mean, well, right. Maybe you, <laughs> you influence that, but the messaging and the clarity and the hope that he's offering so many people, it's very touching. Uh, and the generosity across the border today, we just had a a session with uh, one of our colleagues in Poland and he was mm. describing how they're doing everything they can to show up at the border and yeah. manage donations. So there's, there is beauty uh, in some of our, our darkest moments. It doesn't detract. It doesn't lessen the dark, uh, but it can be held at the same time.
1: So we met when you were the chief experience officer at the Cleveland clinic, but now you're the first chief medical officer for Qualtrics. What is that? What do you do? What do you do as the chief medical? They've never had one, and, you, and you're probably gonna have to explain what Qualtrics is to, to people. I, I think know. Kim Scott might have on a past podcast, but I'll, I'll let you talk about that now.
2: Well, Kelly, as always, we're we're you and I are are blazing trails, right? We're, yes. yes. Just following our big hearts into the unknown. Right. Uh, so, you're absolutely right. You know, part of the fire in my belly is to reduce suffering and create joy uh, in in the world and in healthcare. Certainly, uh, as a neurologist, I try to do that with my patients and have been doing that for 20 years. Uh, in my most recent role as chief experience officer, trying to drive that operationalizing empathy at that system level, how can we integrate it into processes and systems that make the organization and feel caring to the employees within it, as well as the patients. And then I I felt the need after doing that for six or seven years, decided that I really wanted to see if we could leverage technology to Hmm. listen more deeply to understand not simply what people say, but what they value and to act on it, which you and I both know as the foundations of actual compassion, right? It's right. not, we're not listening to create dashboards. We're not listening to tell people they have to achieve a percentile performance, right? We're, we're listening to deeply understand who the people we work with are and who the people that we serve are, and then hopefully changing the next touch, the next conversation, the next moment, so that it could be a moment that matters. And I so I came to Qualtrics uh, in part because they're some of the smartest people I know. Right there, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's a technology company. They uh, are driving what they call experience management, which is a. Uh, foundational platform that's integrated with all sorts of technology and capability around brand building, around listening to employees, around listening to patients or customers across all industries. So finance, tech, telco, government, education, Uh, healthcare is a big bet for them. So they're making a lot of investment there. And uh, not only sort of super, super smart, and I thought I could learn a ton, but huge, huge hearts, right? How can we Mm. shape this amazing Technology, these digital tools that we have to bring more heart into healthcare. How could we use it to actually deliver on the promise of person-centered care, where we're integrating values and preferences of of people into how we communicate with them, how we design programs for them. I, that? So that is fascinating to me, and I thought I'd give it a try. So I here I am, uh, and it's been an absolutely wild ride. Uh, I'll tell you, they move much faster
1: than we do. Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) That's been a little dizzying for me is one of the biggest observations. Um, on my first day, I had a colleague who, whose, uh, baby has cancer. I know that's near and dear to you. Mm. And on the very first day, someone had counseled me, you know, we're a technology company, you know, that empathy and Healthcare stuff might be hard for you to make the transition. And on the very first day, there's like 200 people on a meeting. Everybody writes the name of this baby Mm. on their hand and everybody's got their cameras on. This is a place where everybody puts their camera on Kelly. You would be Mm, so excited. Yeah. And they all hold up to the, the camera, their hand with the name written on it. And I, I mean, I, I I nearly exploded with joy that what a way to bring your heart to the work. What a way to show up for each other. So simple uh, and yet so, so compellingly, heartbreakingly stunning uh, on my yes. first day.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I know we talked about this duality before. And I'm seeing another duality. It's just popping in my head right now, which is the knowledge that the tech space is going to need to collaborate with the things that are most human, storytelling, problem solving, all that jazz, resilience. And then when I think about you and I'm like, oh yeah, you studied as a ballerina and, then, and, do, and you do neuroscience. So you also blend what people might conceive of as, as the soft and the hard, though I think they're both pretty hard. Yeah. Right. And I mean, that, and I don't, I don't know if that's you, it, the way you think of yourself and your pattern, but I'm like, oh, no, that's a thing, I think.
2: Yeah. Well, anybody who tells you empathy is easy has done it very well. So <laughs> <No way>. <laughs> <laughs> we're aligned in that one. I mean, I yeah. think I wrote something once that said, you know, if you empathy is easy when you resonate with the person you're trying to empathize with, right? When there's mm-hmm. there's some um, implicit bias or, or something that feels similar and looks similar. What uh, It's hardest when we can't get that footing with, with someone, and we're still trying to step into that space of empathic curiosity. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, my my husband always jokes, he's a neurosurgeon, I'm a neurologist, and he always jokes that I should have been a neurosurgeon because at times I'm very, very left brain, right? Like, uh uh-huh. Let's get this stuff done. We got places to go, da, 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 da. and and other times, right? I'm sobbing at Disney movies sure. <laughs> that I've seen nine times, and so I think it is a. a I am a blend of left and right brain. That artistic uh, love of ballet and movement, and how the arts could come into healthcare and help us heal is something I'm always been passionate about, interested in, uh, the written word, right? How we could Mm -hmm. leverage that to appreciate more, uh, have more of an impact, and yet also a deep appreciation for, you know, we need to set OKRs and KPIs, and we need to develop plans to drive toward them. And, you know, right? uh, I think I... I try to balance those parts as best I can uh, and have learned to just embrace the joy of imbalance, right? You, it's all a big mess in reality. Yeah, yeah. We're just a potpourri of, of both. Yes. Um, and I do think we, we, as an industry could learn a lot more if we pulled in, you know, imagine the, th- the therapeutic benefit of having caregivers and healthcare or employees, you know, do their own photography and put pictures on the walls that were appropriate, of course, but, you know, as a way of their own healing to use the arts to express where they are and how they're feeling and to have an organization support that. I think those are the nooks and crannies I'd love to see come to life.
1: Well, and I think, you know, at the Cleveland Clinic, they've done some amazing things around art and music um, Mm -hmm. and even improvisation. I mean, that was the thing that when, when I think we first met at a conference I started talking to colleagues of yours about Im- using improv and they kind of were smiling at me. I'm like, what is it? And literally they had my book. <laughs> She's like, oh, I teach your exercises. They're not my exercises. They teach exercises developed at second city over the years. And yeah, like, they were
2: probably is- all dog-eared and like, no, oh yeah, that
1: no, was a wreck. I loved it. It's the best feeling in the world that someone's like, like gone through it uh, that much. Oh, by the way, I do want to take this opportunity. To, like, I really hope at some point in your life, someone has said to you, what do you think you are a brain surgeon or a brain scientist? Like why yes would be the answer.
2: Well, I used to, you know, I used to be a bartender speaking of uh, bias and I, you know, I was a bartender in Boston for about 10 years uh, and I was teaching ballet. That's That's right. And I was teaching ballet before I went to bartend and then I was doing neurobiological research during the day. (laughs) And so the funniest thing that would happen to me, people, people would come up to me when I was bartending and they'd be like, hey, how's it going? You know, I'd like a Cape Cotter. I'd be like, okay, I'd make their Cape Cotter. And they'd be like, so what do you do? You know, is this is this what you do? And I'd be like, No, you know, I do neurobiological research at you know, Brigham and Women's or at Boston University, depending mm-hmm. on where I was. And they they were like, No, you don't. You know, no, no. Come on. And they'd start laughing and I'd be like, No. Really? I do. And then they would just keep laughing. So then I decided I would just say, you know what? You're absolutely right. I have been studying how to make a Cape Codder since I, since I got here. Right. This is very complex work and I want to make sure you have the right garnish. Thank you.
1: This reminds me of a time I was in Houston because someone wanted to build a second city down there. And uh, there, I was going to all the different sort of like biggest entertainment stuff and strip clubs are huge down there. That is a thing. And so I was like, you, you want me to go? Like, I just got to get this pre-approved on the credit card before I go. Where is this going, Kelly? I, it, it's, it's over quickly. It, it, it's not, <laughs> but, but one of the strippers is like, what are you doing? I go, I'm doing research. <laughs> so I'm like, I, this this is the lamest thing in the world, I'm going to say. But I have a notebook. If you're like, I have the notebook and I was writing stuff down. Yeah.
2: I'm sure that counted as huge credibility for her.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I did. That stripper actually did the next day, take me around to other spots. I got approval from my wife Anne first uh, to to like, look at cool spots where a second city could go. Good to know. Only you,
2: only you would get away with that story. It's, it's, you
1: you know, it's one life. It's, it's eclectic. One, one must live it. Uh, Speaking of which, so you wrote a really great, blog piece recently um, that starts with this quote since the emergence of covid-19 the national academy of medicine reports that about 20% of healthcare workers left the industry and of those who remain four out of five say that staff shortages have negatively impacted their ability to work safely and care for patients properly end quote i just did a, a, a keynote for lurie children's hospital and this was a major thing on the list. It was, can you talk to us about burnout and resilience and all of that? Because that struggle is just so, I think it was always a concern, right? And just now it's amped up beyond measure.
2: Well, the, the sheer cost of it, right? I mean, the yeah. people cost, the emotional cost, the operational cost of, right? We all hear these phrases that get thrown out, right? It cost less to keep the customer you already have than to get a new one. It's the same with employees, yeah. right They're, the cost of them leaving is substantial and then the contracting cost where you're seeing people contract out agencies or part-time workers to fill in are also substantial and compound, I think that loss. Uh, I I think for you and I and others who care so much about the experience of humans, The emotional cost worries me a lot too, that if we function as highly performing teams to deliver complex healthcare in some hospitals and in some situations, what does it mean when you no longer know the people who you're working next to because they just came in for their shift that day? Uh, What does it mean in terms of how you're able to show up and what level of empathy that you can bring to the workspace when you're worried about X, Y, and Z going on in your own life? Um, what's your commitment level, right? Most most healthcare workers are deeply committed to the work we do, and when you see the person next to you making three times as much money as you do, you know, with a shift work schedule, uh, you know, it makes people wonder, uh, and so. I, I worry about what that means for how people sh- are able to show up and be right. their best selves. That's the part I worry the much about because empathy does require hard work. Right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And
2: when your own bucket is empty, how, how can we creatively fill it? How can we create um, more energy uh, for people to, to show up the way they want to?
1: Well, one of the things you talk about is bravery, but not bravery in like a war movie sense. You say, quote, being brave is about being who you are. So I want to unpack that a bit because, you know, we're multifaceted weirdos and all of us, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're so connected with each other. Right. But we're also thoroughly unique, more duality. Um, so to Talk to us a bit about like, even with you, like how you are who you are and how you show up successfully and work with that.
2: Yeah. Well, I'll give you some examples. Maybe storytelling is the best way to answer. Mm-hmm. When I was in uh, medical school, I remember there was an anatomy class where uh, the teacher, the the situation was such that there was a hearing impaired student in the class and yet the the policy was we didn't record any of the teaching sessions. And there was one session where the hearing aid or something wasn't working for the student, and the policy wasn't going to be changed. Uh-huh. You know, they were just going to miss out on that learning. And I remember yeah. being like, well, that's dumb. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> You know, speaking up and writing the professor and saying, you know, that that makes no sense, right? We need to be inclusive in how we teach anatomy in med school. Like we're healers. This is he's a member of our team. Yeah. So speaking up and it felt really awkward and weird.
0: Sure. Uh,
2: I remember another conversation in in medical school when the teacher was. It was one of these humanities classes, uh, which aren't very well embraced all the time in med school, because you're trying to get people to relate to these profoundly deep experiences that many of them have never had yet, no. right? You've never told somebody they have cancer. You haven't had a patient die. And yet here we are trying to teach them how to imagine through it. And the question was, well, what, what, what are uncomfortable topics for doctors to be talking about? And of course, there's like five minutes of silence. And I said, well, sex, like that's probably mm-hmm. hard for doctors to bring up and it's hard for people to talk about and uncomfortable. And, and the, the teacher looked at me and said, I'd like you to stay after class. Um, and when I stayed after class, she told me that I was being irreverent. What? And I, I thought I, you, you asked a question about what makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. I answered the question, And clearly it made you uncomfortable because now I'm after class, you know, getting detention in (laughs) high school. And and I don't bring it up for the shock value. I just bring it up to say, and that held true, I think, as I moved through that, even even empathy, these things I cared about, uh, staying late in the rooms to see if patients really understood what we had said or going back to talk to the family when they still had questions. I think many residents, many fellows all have the experience of of spending spending that time that doesn't necessarily count, right? In terms of getting things done, we didn't get the echo report, we didn't do the discharge summary, these tactical things that need to get done. These are purpose-driven things. and And yet, you spend the time because it's who who I am uh, and it's not always reinforced during mm. training. And I just want to reflect that at some point you, I sat with myself, I'm like, you know what? I seem to be interested in all these things that not a lot of other people are interested in. Yeah, and it, And clearly I can't shake it, right? I can't keep my mouth quiet, although I will always work to do it in a respectful way you know, being careful about how I use emotion and storytelling. And I am someone who will speak up and I am someone who brings my heart to the work and is curious about the hearts and minds around me. And that's just who I am. Yeah. And I'm going to stop apologizing for it. I'm going to stop expecting other people to be like me. I'm going to step into who I am and And live both my work and my life in accordance uh with what I understand about my values and my joy pie and that that's very freeing actually once mm-hmm. once you do that it's not easy uh as I did feel weird at multiple points mm-hmm. in my life I still feel weird and awkward and um it's it's how I
1: choose to show up. Well, I would imagine that you have many rich relationships in your life.
2: I hope so. I'm a, I'm an introvert by nature. So I would much prefer depth to my relationships and the people who are closest to me, uh, my friendships, uh, more than I'm very good at, at surface or, you know, uh, because if I'm going to expend energy, I, I want to spend it in meaningful ways. Yeah. I think we'll it, all say that it, in some ways, but our meaning it, might look different, right?
1: Yeah. I, I say this too, because certainly in my early career at Second City, as I'm watching really successful comedic writer performers, they are so adept at creating stories and characters that draw from their lives, and, um, and, and they become incredible storytellers. And then I sort of realized, oh, when I'm looking around me in the office, the people who are most successful are people who are doing the same thing, who are not afraid to tell their fiasco, because frankly, no one wants to hear how everything went great. That's not funny or interesting. (laughs) I want to hear when it goes awry. Um, And, uh, you know, but also like, in even even the smallest of details, we know this from our work with the behavioral science community, that that kind of, like, personal storytelling, which I think breeds resilience. I think when you are comfortable sharing that story, there's something that goes on, especially when you see how mostly it's very well received, deepens the kind of communication and the ability for people to tell the truth. Hmm. Not that they're looking to lie. It's that that kind of self-disclosure is not easy for human beings.
2: No. In fact, I'm... I, I, I feel incredibly vulnerable after I share pieces of myself, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at the conference we've had you at in the past. I, it is, is it's, it's hard, it's hard for me. Yeah. And, and yet um, I read something once from um, Brene Brown that you have to be careful about why you're sharing your story right? Mm -hmm. I'm not sharing my story because I need empathy from people, you know, or because I need to show that my suffering was greater or less than anybody else. You know, I think it's a really important question. Um, I hope that we all share stories for the benefit of someone who might be listening, watching, learning um, themselves to recognize everybody is messy. You know, I, I, I don't have it all together and I'm working very hard just like everybody else. And I've got brokenness uh, too. Uh, And I'm, it's a, it's a daily struggle is not the right word, but a daily intention.
1: It's a daily intention. Yeah. And, in that, That and that idea of moment to moment even, and that's, it. That's a that's a more difficult way to exist. But I think ultimately, if you can find a way to practice, make, find what your rights are, where you're, where you rest, you, you need rest. You can't keep at at this all the time. All that stuff, I think is just, you're going to be, you're going to be a happier human being. And then you're going to be capable of making other people happier. Um, I know it's a bit well,
2: isn't, but, isn't the thought... I heard this once about improv and I'm sure you can correct me
1: because you're, you're yes. the
2: godfather of improv, but the idea too of improv was this notion, which I I've always either just made up in my head and ran with, or is actually true. But part of the idea is the word comes from the idea of improving, right? You're, you're here to improve the moment you're in, improve the conversation. And we use, imp- right? Improv. Um, makes me think about how could we improve the lives of someone else. How can we improve the conversation? How can we... so again? Whether I made that up or not, please. Don't you made it, it up,
1: but it's good. Um, oh, I and, did and, make it up. Well, perfect. Yeah, but but it's good. And and in fact, the thing that it does connect to is this idea of my job as, as in, in an improvisation is to make you look good, and your job is to make me look good. And when we can become truly others focused, we all win. All of us are better than one of us. So yes. I think those, those adages are so affirming because the work really is about like, how do we get the best out of groups of people working together, making something out of nothing? Um, and as you know, you've worked in, we've both worked in a variety of teams that have been dysfunctional or you know, problematic or whatever. But then when you work in a team where it works, that's what's happening.
2: Well, it it reminds me of the, you know, empathy has gone through so many renditions over the years with different psychologists looking at it, right? Like we went from um, recognizing that if you are aggressive to a Bobo doll, if the parent is aggressive to a Bobo doll and kids watch it on video, the kids when left alone with a Bobo doll are going to go in and whack it with a bat or, you know, punch it. So there's a modeling component to it. And then later evolved to this notion that empathy was the idea to feel into that not only modeling has an element, but empathy was this idea to feel into art, feel mm-hmm. into the experience of another while still maintaining self right yeah, yeah. and so, as you're describing with improv, it reminds me of that that you're yeah. still hanging on to your own position and place in the universe and you're trying to improve. The experience, or trying to lift uh, another, as you as you practice your skill, and and to me, there's there's a there is something therapeutic and beneficial uh, to the ability to step outside of self.
1: Yeah, for sure. The that other thing you you resonate. talked about, the thing you talked about quite a bit too, is gratitude,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and I know there's a bunch of research on this, and I was reading. I think it was Stephen Covey's new book. I'm going to have him on the podcast soon. And he told this story about the former PepsiCo CEO, Indra Nui. Um, And she was trying to change the culture at Pepsi. And uh, she landed on a thing that she did. And in her time in that position, she wrote over 400 letters to the parents of her employees saying what a good job they were doing.
2: Yeah. you
1: just hit me in the heart that's it's beautiful what a beautiful move i'm like because everyone wins cuz you know that parent would called their kid and were like your boss just sent me a letter saying how like i if a boss sent that to my son i would be like over the moon and you know the the son or daughter are over the moon
2: yeah isn't it interesting i have a thread of letter writing in my own my own story mhm uh, as you know, I, I lost three fathers to the same disease, and I um, one of them was ab- abusive in my home, and uh, that created me gravitating toward a lot of other families as I was growing up. And when I look back, there were people who I wrote to once I became a neurologist about how they had impacted uh, me on my journey. One of them, I wrote very personal essays about my experience growing up as part of that narrative piece of your med school application. And uh, only one person asked me about it on my interview trail. And I reached out to her years later and said, I want to tell you the story of how it felt to have one person, you read my essay and then be brave enough to have a conversation with me about what had happened to me and how it shaped me. And she wrote back this beautiful note hmm. saying, you know, absolutely made the right pick. Um You know, you're exactly what healthcare, you know, just these beautiful yeah. sentiments. And I, not only felt almost closure, but this incredible warmth, of course, and love uh, that I could give into the universe, and it would it would give back to me in in bounty. And I think that is the power of gratitude.
1: I want to note because uh, we're getting close to asking you for your yes and story that I have five pages of notes, and I didn't get halfway through page one. Uh, so I, that's that's a win. <laughs> uh, and you just mentioned love, and I want. To say again, in this in this recent blog piece you write that people should quote use the word love in a meeting in a meeting and mean it at least once a week. Uh, we're about to interview Marcus Buckingham next week, who has a new book called Love Plus Work, which is a manifesto about our need to bring love into the workplace. Because if we don't love what we're doing, we're not going to do it well. Um, this seems radical in in business. It seems radical in healthcare. Shouldn't be. Should it be? Yeah. No.
2: I And even, I mean, I have to admit, in my younger sort of fully armored self, which had helped me survive some of my own circumstance, telling me that relationship-centered care mattered or relationships mattered or relationship-centered communication was a thing, Mm -hmm. or I should talk about love, I would have... I would have laughed you off the stage. (laughs) I mean, I just wasn't, I just wasn't ready and cope coping mechanisms. I had worked so hard to build to survive my circumstance. So how'd uh, you
1: get there? Certainly
2: weren't ready to hear it. What was the, Uh, I think slow, slow shedding of armor over time, Mm -hmm. recognizing that, I can't have meaningful relationships with my patients if I don't show up differently for them Mm -hmm. um, in their moments of suffering. I can't show up in my personal relationships. I'm still not very good at it. So I'm working at it all the time just to trust and be vulnerable in those spaces. And yet the the hunger for it sort of keeps me going on when we trained clinicians in communication skills i probably had my biggest aha moment just that there was so many stories so much suffering no safe space for it to go mm-hmm. uh for these humans that witness and bear moments with patients that none of us can imagine uh stories of Heartbreak and abuse, and layers upon layers. And then we're saying, Be healthy, eat corn, Mm -hmm. you know. (laughs) You know, these, the emotional journey of people was heavier and complex and intimate. And when we attended to that, those stories and that suffering in our own employees and clinicians and people, it was as though you. It was as though you healed some space in them that uh, allowed them to to just heal uh, and be the healer I think they were fully capable of being. And without a space to talk about it, it felt invisible for them. And in those moments, I would say that was probably the biggest chips in my armor. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. know, just if they were willing to do it, I could too if they were willing to, to be vulnerable in a safe space that I could take that chance to. And so I do think that using our voices as experienced professionals or just wherever you are, you have this great quote, play the scene you're in, not the one you want to be in. Right. Mm-hmm. stole that from you and I didn't mm-hmm. actually make that one up mm-hmm. that wherever you are, you can spread a little love. You can create a little joy. You can light, write a letter of gratitude. You can use your creativity and your voice uh, to impact people around you. And I think that's the idea. No matter what meeting you're in, no matter what space you're in, you have the power to do that every single day. And what a gift.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it can be the littlest thing completely. One of the, one of the things I have done in the last few years is, uh, if, as, especially with new people who like uh, recent employees, if I hear someone else say a nice thing about them, I will go up to them and go, someone was talking nice about you behind your back. And I, I swear it, it, people are like, wh- like they're just and dumb
2: ready because-
1: to and I go, no, just, you-, so you know, they're talking. I always like to tell people that because, you know, they, they, they may not say it to you, but they were just saying, what a great human you are or whatever it is. And mm-hmm. it's like, it takes nothing. It takes nothing for me to do that. And it's true. I'm not making it up.
2: Yeah. We had one of the most beautiful, beautiful things. I don't know if you taught me or someone else did, but I'll give you all the credit. Uh, we had a, a very long-term patients on one of our units once, I mean, years, months, mm. years and very difficult situation all around for family and for caregivers for a variety of reasons. So we'll skip over that part. Nonetheless, on the day the, the patient was discharged, um, the care you could tell there was this range of emotions, but there was no activity to sort of yeah. harness it. And um, we asked as the patient was wheeled wheeled away. You sense that, and we showed up on the floors. I went to the floors, gathered the whole team around in a circle, and simply did this appreciation exercise where one person just says, "What I have appreciated about you is blank."
0: Yeah. Yeah,
2: and and people, it was as though you lanced this boil of unheard emotion and energy that uh, that just created room for peace and and love and gratitude, and it was one of the most powerful things I've ever seen. And people were yeah. like, "I didn't know you appreciated that about me." I I was just doing my job, you know, and, and people were like, no, it meant more. It's just beautiful. So I do think there's something to the power of simply saying out loud, very specifically, what I appreciate about you is blank. What I love yeah. about you is blank. The way you and showed make, up it make it specific,
1: make it specific. That's, that's important.
2: It was incredibly powerful. So if you came up with that, thank you.
1: Uh, there, there is a improv exercise that we do. That's, that's in That so it might be all right. Um, I could talk to you forever. Uh, do you have a yes, and story for us to close out the pod?
2: I do. Well, I should disclose that I'm a full fan of yes. And I often use it as we're hoping to engage groups. Uh, and I had a aha moment. There was a decision once that, uh, a CEO made that I was very, I was in disagreement
1: with <laughs> great. I this is already starting well.
2: And I was venting in a very safe space with mm-hmm. a friend that I trust. Uh, on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> yeah, on and on and on about why <laughs> this was why my position, of course, was right. And the person sort of nodding their head. Uh, listening. They maybe may have pulled a couple of yes ands on me, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And then they said, you know, Adrian, I'm really curious. If you were to model the skills that you teach, what would that sound like? (laughs) And I thought to myself, I'm. I don't want to be your friend anymore.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's the your first thought. There was a second thought. I know there was.
2: The second thought was, oh, that feels yucky. That is not the reaction I was looking for. And then, of course, my adult brain kicked in. Maybe three years later, and
1: <laughs> <laughs> so well. I was hoping it was gonna be three minutes, but three okay, years, sure. Well, What's time?
2: Of course. Of course that's where I need to go. And it was so counterintuitive to everything I was feeling. I have to say it I want you to feel the amount of energy it took for me to show up in a conversation with the CEO and say say um they said well I you know I've made this decision and I said yes And I want you to know, I can imagine why you think it's important to do this.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. And I know how deeply committed you are to the good. good and the values that we both are hardwired to that's all I said. Okay. I did not bring a butt and I'm hoping you can applaud or insert sound here because I still need to be validated about it. But I I worked very hard and that's where I got. And it generated, he opened up in a beautiful way that was unexpected to say, yes. And let me tell you how I came to that decision and some of the things I considered. And so I just kept yes, yes, anding to pull more of him out uh, so that I could show up differently to the conversation.
1: Well, this is where you've heard me talk about thank you because, right? Which is more recent work that we've done. And that's that's that moment of that. Uh, it allows you to stay inside a difficult conversation. Not that you shouldn't share your truth because you should share your truth at a certain point. But if, you, you, if you're not going to be heard, If you start with, like, just the cold resistance, no one is getting anywhere with that. No.
2: I do think it created more relationship credibility and longevity. Yeah. Because I was able to use Yes And.
1: Well, that's a great Yes And story. That's, like, ideal. (laughs) You're you're ending the podcast perfectly.
2: Well, if only you could make it a whole bunch easier, I would do it.
1: Uh, okay. We'll come up with more.
2: No, it's it's certainly a skill set. I think uh, it goes that conscious incompetence, right? It's a skill set yeah. that you have to practice with intention because everything, every fiber of your being, every neuron of your brain is firing in a different direction. And it takes intention and practice. And if you're hoping to bring gratitude and joy and relationship into the world, it's absolutely worth it.
1: That's a great place to stop. Dr. Adrian Boise, thank you for coming on the show.
2: Thank you. So good to see you.
1: The Getting to Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Ferranaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox The Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.